thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Pastor Kevin Kelts. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Last week, I started a message called Beyond Belief, and I really had you guys look over at the banner, and we talked about how Pastor Jared, he called me last year, and it was, you know, probably like three or four months ago, and he said, you know, Kevin, I've just been thinking about and praying about the, what is the word? What is the word? And we had talked about the idea of where we're going, but we didn't know how to put it on a banner. And he said, God spoke to me this morning in prayer as I was praying for the church, as I was praying for us, and it's beyond belief. And as soon as he said it, I said, yes, 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 that's it, beyond belief. And I'm going to kind of recap and review a little bit of where we went last week in the message because I can tell you, for me personally, I'm 40 years old, and that has been the description of my journey for the last 35 years, is God taking me beyond belief. And and, and I started just to share the simple little illustration of story about this mom who was teaching her daughter how to prepare the famous baked ham that has been passed down from generation to generation in their family. And she's preparing, they they get the ham out, they they get the, the you know, score the ham, they, they start to put all the spices on it, they put the marinade on it, they're doing all these, and they get to the last step, and they cut off both ends of the ham, and she puts it in the pan ready to be cooked, and the daughter says, Mom, why, I, I get everything that you did, but why did you do that last, that last step that, that seems wasteful? I don't know why you did that. And the mom thought about it, and she said, I, I, I really can't tell you why, we do that. It's just, I do that because that's how my mom taught me how to do it. And she said, well, you need to call grandma and find out because that seems wasteful. So they get on the phone, they call grandma. Grandma, why did, we're preparing the ham. Why do we cut off both the ends of the ham? And the grandma says, you know, I've never really thought about it, but that's the way that my mother taught me. So that's how I taught you. And the, the daughter's like, well, you know, I was thinking about it. It could be to, to let the marinade be able to soak in. Maybe that's why she didn't. She goes, no, actually, when I was taught, we didn't actually put a marinade on it. I always thought that this thing might dry out when we cook it. So I added the marinade to it, but you know, I just did it because my mom taught me. So they call the great-grandmother, and they get the great-grandmother on the phone. And she, they say, great-grandma, why do we cut off both ends of ham? And she said, for land's sakes, are you still doing that? We were just poor, and we had a small pan, so I had to cut off both ends of the ham to be able to fit that ham into our only pan. She's like, stop doing that. And and what happened was, is a tradition was passed down from one generation to one generation until somebody asked why. And I can tell you that in my journey, and probably in your journey, most of us, we believe what we believe to be true about God, to be true about religion, to be true about Jesus, to be true even about ourselves, is because we learned it from somebody that we love and that we trust. A moral upstanding person that we look up to that was a faithful person. And, and in turn, if you think about it, they did the same thing. 
it was passed down from somebody that they loved. And so something that they believed to be true about God was now passed down to, to them, and now it was passed down to you. And so in, in my story, I'm not going to recap the whole message, but you can go and you can watch it on our Facebook uh, page. You can go and download the uh, podcast on our app, and you can listen to it again. But my story has been, there have been situations that I have gone through in my life and where all of a sudden I thought I believed a certain way, it was challenged. My belief system was challenged, and I started to ask the question, why? Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I think the way that I think? And many times when my belief system was challenged, I would get to the point where somebody would tell me, well, what was just shown you in the Scripture and was told you in the Scripture, it was just taken out of context. And that sounded good to me because the person that said that was somebody that I trusted, but I really didn't know what that meant. I don't know what that meant to be taken out of context. And so I just went, you know, I told you all about how I was, uh, you know, attacked one day in church by our, our youth class leader. And he told me that, you know, pretty much we're going to bust open the gates of hell because we we're wearing shorts to church. And I told my mom, this is what he said. And he showed me it in the Bible. And, and she says, well, that's just silly. You know, nobody's going to go to hell for wearing shorts to church. And that felt good to me that she said that. I really couldn't prove it in the Bible. She said he took it out of context. And so I just went with a good feeling, and I believed that for the rest of my life. I didn't know why I believed it. I couldn't prove it to you. And so that was kind of the journey that I went on. And so I started to show you guys how in our belief systems, we all have these things called filters. Everybody say filters. Filters come from how you were raised, who raised you, where you were raised, what church you went to when you were a kid. If you didn't, the family that didn't raise you in a church and the reasons that they taught you why they, those are all filters that we have when we start to look for what we believe, what we believe in. And so we, we really looked at how then do you get past these filters? And I gave you some tools. We looked at uh, for us to be able to have a healthy view and to be able to dig out of the Bible. We talked about two words. We talked about an an exegesis and an eisegesis. Do you remember, anybody remember those words? And an exegesis is doing like what an archaeologist would do. When they are digging in a certain area, they're looking for what's already in there. And so when we read the Bible, we should use a proper exegesis to just read in a passage and now pull out what's in there. Eisegesis is the opposite. It would be like if somebody dug a big hole, they threw in what they wanted, they put it back up, and then they started digging for what they had already put in there. It's now you have a preconceived filter when reading the Bible and you're looking for we've always been taught that we believe this certain way and so when I read the scripture I'm looking for this idea and I promise you you can pretty much find whatever you want to you can justify just about anything when you have a preconceived idea we also talked about having a hermeneutic a proper hermeneutic is just a, a way to translate it's the it's the idea of translating it's the art of translating and most, the, I, I, what I have found to be the best way to have a, a proper uh, way of translating, a proper hermeneutic, is a historical contextual hermeneutic. And so we talk about then, last week, we talked a little bit about that, of what was going on in the history, what was going on in the culture when this was written. You need to ask two questions to have a proper historical uh, contextual hermeneutic. The first question is, what would this have meant to the author when they writ wrote it? What was going on in their day? What would it have meant to them? The second question that you need to ask is, what would it have meant to the first reader? So you ask all these things. Uh, we talked about the, the second thing that you need to have is not just a proper 
hermeneutic, but you also need to have this idea and understand that as you read the Bible, God is progressively revealing himself throughout the Bible. And, and that's very important for you to understand. And, and so we're finally going to get to where we're going today. I started to show you guys how if you don't understand that, you can get confused at times when you're reading the Bible because you don't understand that the Bible is not chronologically correct at times. You remember us talking about that? And I had a lot of you guys also just start sending me emails or posting stuff on, on Facebook. That, you know what? This is so awesome. I even had somebody uh, uh, text me this last week and say, hey, I'm looking into buying. They actually sell a chronological Bible. Hey, that's awesome. Get yourself a chronological Bible. Now, here's the thing, though. Don't then throw away the translation that you have now and say, now we're building a church and we're the first chronological Bible church. Because that's what we tend to do. We find something new and we go with that and it's only this, right? Okay, listen, the chronological Bible, it's just a tool for you to be able now to see what's going on. Because many times what, what you'll see and, and, and what will happen is we can actually put up that first, that first uh, that slide for you. I posted this on our Facebook page this last week, and you start to see a timeline of the books in the Bible. And what you'll see then is the 14th and the 15th book that we have in our Bible are actually out of order. It's Ezra and Nehemiah. You can see way down there at like 500 B.C., you see an orange box, and it says Ezra. Well, when we're reading in our chronology, that comes right after 1st and 2nd uh, Chronicles, right? Or First and Second Samuel. So we're reading, and all of a sudden you're reading along, and you're, you know, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. That's, that's your new resolution. And you get to the point where you get to the story, and you start to read Ezra and Nehemiah. And all of a sudden you read about this prophet who is now rebuilding the temple. Ezra, he's rebuilding the temple. And you go, whoa, 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 just a second. Pump the brakes just a second. Because... I never read in this story chronologically where the temple was ever torn down. Like, like, what's going on here? You get to the book of Nehemiah, which Pastor Jared preached about two weeks ago, and you're reading about Nehemiah going back, and he's going back. Pastor Jared told us to do one thing. He's going to rebuild the walls. And you read that, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 time out, time out. At no time in the chronological order of the Bible that I'm reading, when I got to this book, all the 13 preceding books, nobody ever told me that anything was broken down. It was ever, the walls are still up. Why are they rebuilding the walls if they're built up? And so all of a sudden, it can get very confusing. And then one day, you're watching TV, and you're like, you know what? I just want to be uplifted. I'm going to turn on, you know, some Christian preacher who's preaching. And he gets up, and he turns to the book of Isaiah. And he says, if you get your Bibles out and look in the book of Isaiah, and he says, listen, this is Isaiah, and he is prophesying. This is a prophecy that he's saying is going to happen sometime in his future. And he reads it, and you start to read about this prophecy of destruction and desolation that's coming. And then he tells you that that prophecy is not only in his future, but it's sometime in your future too. 
you're like, holy cow, we need to move from Houston. We need to sell all of our stuff. We need to go some, buy some land out in the middle of nowhere. I think some people did this in 1999, right? Y2K was coming. They thought the end of the world was coming. They started to move to a little podunk town that I grew up in, Roaring Springs, and they started to buy land. They started to buy all this, this uh, the dry goods and start to, to store up for the apocalypse that was coming. And you can be, oh, you're, oh my goodness, you, if you don't understand, the chronology of the Bible is a little bit out of order when we start to get to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, because now after Ezra and Nehemiah, you get to Isaiah, and he's prophesying what's going to happen, the destruction that's going to happen. Then you get to the book of Daniel, and you find in the book of Daniel, I read this to you last week, Daniel, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and he says, wow, I start to have an understanding that the 70 years of desolation is coming to, the, to an end. This Babylonian siege is coming to an end, and now God is wanting us to rebuild. So he starts to pray this stuff to happen, and now what you would see later on as you were reading the Bible, it actually should go now back from him to the books that are previous in your Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, and it all fits together. And if you have a chronological understanding of that, when that preacher tells you that that uh, that stuff, this apocalyptic stuff that's going to happen in your future, you go, no, 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 time out, time out. That's not what Isaiah was prophesying. He wasn't prophesying to me. He was prophesying to those people in that day. I actually read about how it happened Daniel said it came to an end, and then Ezra and Nehemiah saw a fulfillment of it coming to an end and rebuilding everything. So it's, it's important, right? So I, I, I told some of you guys that I would give you a kind of, if, if I was going to make my own little way to read the Bible in chronological order, this is how it would be. I would actually spit, I showed you last week how they split when they first put these 66 Bibles in the, in the canonized form, they split it into four different groups. It was the history group, right? Then it was the poems and poetry songs group. That was the second group. Then it was the major and minor prophets. I would actually split history into history one and history two. Okay, so we would start with Genesis and we would go all the way through to first and second chronicles. If you look at your Bible, look at your table of contents right now, that's a pretty good chronological order. Okay, you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Okay, that's going pretty good. Then we get to a place where these new kings are coming in and they divide the nation into two pieces. As they start to divide and there's more corrupt things going on, this is where you would need to start reading the major and the, the major prophets. Go ahead and read the major prophets, but don't include Daniel because Daniel it's going to come a little bit later. You'll have Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and you can go read this later or listen to it later and write all this stuff down, okay? You'll have Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. They're declaring the destruction that's about to occur in Israel. Then that's when you need to start reading the minor prophets, which are contemporaries to the major prophets, okay? That would be the... the you would stop history one right there, and then you would start history two category. History two category picks up with what I just told you, the book of Daniel, and he actually reads from the book of Jeremiah. There's a rebuilding. There's seven years of desolation of Jerusalem. It's coming to an end. And then you would read Ezra, Nehemiah. That would finish the history two category, okay? And then 
what you really need to do is you need to think about the books that you don't have in there. We're talking about the Old Testament right now. It would be great then because um, you see in the book of Psalms, Moses wrote some of those Psalms. Okay, so what I would do is I would just take and I would go to, you know, the book of Exodus and I would take and just at the end of Exodus, take those Psalms of Moses and say, okay, chronologically, this is where they fit in. And I need to read some of these and have an understanding of where Moses is in, what's going on in his culture, what's going on in his time and why this is why he's saying these certain things. Then you can go and take the Psalms that are from uh, King David. You can add them to the end of first Samuel because that's where they go. You can take 2 Samuel and you could add the what Solomon wrote, King Solomon, when he wrote his works and Proverbs and Song of Psalms. That's where those things go. Then we have a problem. Where do you put the book of Job? We talked a little bit about this last week. But Job is really what we understand to be the earliest book that was written. And so Job, now, it would really kind of you need to cut Genesis in between where Noah and Abraham, that chronology, that's where Job goes. You could actually just leave Genesis the way that it is and at the end put a note and say, Job goes in between Noah and Abraham, okay? But that's just to have an understanding that God is revealing himself progressively. Everybody said progressively. Why, pastor, do we need to understand that? Why do we know this? Well, I just gave you a couple of explanations, but another is the names of God. The names of God. Here's the thing. When you get up on, just say on Monday morning, tomorrow, and you you say, you know, I have a relationship with God. I want to continue to know him more. I'm going to get up and I'm going to read my Bible. Most of us do that in the form of either a daily Bible reading. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, don't stop doing that. Or we do a devotional, right? In a daily devotional, uh, Bible reading or devotional, what we do is we just read parts of the Bible. We just take out a little part, and then we get a little edification of that, and that continues for us to go. Keep doing that. Um, please, don't hear me say stop doing that. There is a problem with that, though. Let's say one day you open up your, your uh, Bible reading, and you get to, let's say, Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. And you read it, and it says, and Abraham, out of the New King, out of the King James Version, says this. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. And you haven't been coming to church very much. That doesn't make a lick of sense to you. You have no idea what Jehovah Jireh. Now, when I went to church when I was a kid, I would have some preachers get up here, man, and they would be sweating and they'd be yelling and screaming because he is Jehovah Jireh. Come on, your provider. And they would, I mean, they'd be going after it. And I knew that that's what Jehovah Jireh meant. You, if you didn't know that, then you could get, you put down your King James Version and you pick up your NIV. And in the NIV, it says, and so Abraham called the place. Now, these translators didn't just use Jehovah Jireh. They wanted you to be able to understand what that meant. And that's good. That's really good. So you read right here that Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide. And that makes you feel good for that day. But you really don't get the impact of what that means. Because you're not thinking about how God reveals himself progressively throughout the Bible. You see, if you have a historical contextual hermeneutic and you're thinking about how, how this thing is chronological, you start to understand that when God did this, in that day and at that time, these people didn't know God. 
We do. We live in 2019. We came to church today because we believe in God. We came to church today because we have a Bible and we are believers. And we have all this information that we've been taught. It's at our fingertips. We believe that God is God. He is Jehovah God. But these people back then didn't. So what you have is going along, God starts to reveal himself. And, and you have to understand that back in those days, something that existed and was commonly known was monotheism. Does anybody know what monotheism means? I mean, what, what existed back then was polytheism. What's accepted now is monotheism. A lot of people raise your hand. What's monotheism? It's the belief in there is one God, right? Polytheism was back in their day. Everybody say polytheism. That was several gods. And so what would happen is, let's say that you were a farmer and you were going to plant your crops. Well, you needed the soil to be fertile, so you needed rain. What you would do is they had a god for he was in charge of the rain. And so they would go and they would have a sacrifice for that God. And they would say, we present this sacrifice and we pray to you, O God of the rain, send the rain. But at the same time, they had a different God, and he was the sun God. And they say, after the rain, we need the sun, so we need our crops to grow. So they would go to the sun God, who was different from the rain God, and they would make a sacrifice, a different sacrifice to a different God, and beg and plead, please send the sun. And then somebody would get sick in their family, and that was grandma's God. So they go to grandma, and they say, God, who's the healing God? And they say, she'd say, oh, it's so-and-so and such-and-such, and to get the healing so this person doesn't die you need to go and you need to offer this type of sacrifice to this certain god listen that was common everybody say common that was normal that's what everybody knew in that day and at that time and so all of a sudden god comes along the one true god jehovah god and one day he comes to abraham and he says i know you don't know me I know we're just starting this relationship. You can't go to a book and find this anywhere. There's not the internet. You don't have access to this information, Abraham. But you need to know that I am Jehovah Jireh, and I am your provider. And this is, he's going, what? I thought that was this guy. And God goes, no, 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 no. I'm about to take you beyond belief, Abraham. Because you used to have this God for the sun and that God for the rain and this God for healer. But you don't need a bunch of other gods, Abraham, because I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the God, the Lord who provides for you. I am Jehovah Nisi. I am the God who protects you, Abraham. I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the God who heals you. And moment by moment and day by day and experience by experience, all of a sudden, God is revealing himself progressively to these people. When we read that scripture, we go, oh, I already knew that God's a provider. And I'm glad that it just reminded me of this. When Abraham was downloading this stuff, it was happening to him for the first time. And it was huge, baby. It was awesome. So, guys, it's, export, it's important to have a proper understanding that God reveals himself progressively. Now, let's talk about the New Testament for just a second. Because we talked about the Old Testament and the chronology of that. Now, let me show you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back in my slides just a little bit. And I want you to put up this little diagram that we have for you this morning. This is very interesting. The book of Genesis, the time span of this book, I don't know if you knew this, but 
The book of Genesis, it starts with Adam and it ends with Joseph. That is a time span of 2,417 years. Think about that. Try to wrap your mind about, around that much time. The book, and we got it kind of uh, cut off a little bit, but that'll help make my point. The book of from Exodus to Malachi, that's the rest. So take Genesis out, and now you're looking at Exodus in your Bible all the way to the book of Malachi. That is a time period of 1,300 years. So one book, the book of Genesis, is almost double the time period of Exodus to Malachi. That's kind of beyond belief. I don't know if you ever realized that before. The book, there's... 26 books in the New Testament. And um, 27 books in the New Testament. The 27 books in the New Testament only cover 40 years. So, Genesis is almost two times Exodus to Malachi. Genesis is almost 60 times the time span of the New Testament. See, the New Testament was written within one generation in a current, in the same political uh, environment, in the same culture that things are going on. So listen, when we talk about the, the chronology of the New Testament, it's not as important as the chronology of the Old Testament. And really, Genesis is in pretty great order. But here's the thing. The thing that gets us really mixed up is all the craziness between Exodus and Malachi. That 1,300 years can get some people confused. So it's important for us to be able to understand. I will tell you this. There are some scholars who have made an attempt to prove that the New Testament was written a little longer than 40 years. Uh, they like to add on, you know, like 20 years uh, or, or 10 years to say, you know, that it was literally written in uh, 80 80. And so what they do is the reason that they say this is because when they study the book of Matthew, and we kind of talked about this in Matthew 24 last week, the prophecy that Jesus gave about the destruction of uh, the temple in Jerusalem, it was so precise and so accurate that these people believe that it could only have been written after it was pro after the prophecy was completely fulfilled. It was so detailed that they say that it had to be written after this. They deny that he prophesied that supernaturally, and so in their theology, they say that it had to be after that. Uh, I'll tell you a book that you can go read that is an awesome read. It's by John A.T. Robinson. It's a tremendous theologian and a scholar. He wrote a book called Redating the New Testament, which I have believe he demonstrates in depth while the New Testament was written between 30 AD and 70 AD. And so it's written between a time span of about 40 years. And we don't have to really uh, be that worried about the chronology of the New Testament. So here we go. This is where I wanted to get today. Let's use these tools to now go ahead and start to dig and look at some things that you may have grew up believing. And, and you may think, I don't know I heard that before, but I don't know why I believe that way. Uh, and I'm going to take something very simple that I was, I was raised up and was kind of put into the people that I grew up around. It was something that was thrown into uh, on people that I looked up to. And it was a belief that when I was growing up, there was this idea that said this, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, 
leadership, like the offices of pastor, is limited only to men, and they could prove that scripturally. And so there were women, and when I was a kid, that were, you know, amazingly gifted, um, had a, a knowledge of the, of the Bible, had a knowledge of the Scripture, had a gift for leadership. You could just see it all over them, but they weren't even looked at for ministry because they were a woman. And I was raised in a, in a place where there were certain people that were, you know, saying, well, listen, I would like to step it up, and I would like to be used in the church. And just because they were women, there would be a man that would stand up to them and say, well, listen, the Bible clearly shows that men are, are you know, have more worth, more value than women do. And, you know, that women are supposed to be subservient. They're supposed to be submissive to the husband, to the man. The man is supposed to be the leader of the house. There's no way you could ever lead a church or lead any type of ministry. And they would do that. And so I, in this time period, have a sister. I have one sibling. She's younger than me. And so, you know, in that type of environment, if you're a little girl in the service and the pastor is saying that type of thing, you start to get a perspective of Father God. You fill in the blank of what you think that girl would think. I'm the, the proud father of four children. Three of them are girls. And so there is a lot of people even today that would look at my daughters and say, well, I know, I know that you're very intelligent. I know that you're a great person, but God just really can't use you. And so we're going to look at what does the Bible say about this? Why have people used certain scriptures to prove their point in that? And uh, they really use three parts of scripture in Ah, they're in the New Testament too. And so it's kind of like, ugh, these are, these are very problematic when you look at them. It's kind of hard to read. But when you encounter these, these passages that we're going to look at this morning, there is an overarching message throughout the entire Bible towards women. And then all of a sudden, there are these three places in the Bible where it seems that it contradicts what the entire Bible was saying. And so it can be kind of confusing. So we're going to look at those today. We're going to set the proper background of what the Bible has to say about this and what God has to say about this. We're going to start in the beginning. Everybody say, in the beginning. So who was the first woman? Eve. Everybody say Eve. God created Eve from Adam, right? And if you go and study this, she was literally called a help meet. Everybody say meet. M-E-E-T. Now, there's been a lot of study on this one word, help meet. But basically what it comes down to is that she was in equal position. Everybody say equal. Okay, she was equal. You can look at one's translation, and the translation would say a helper. She was a helper as his partner. Okay, a partner, an equal. Another translation says a helper comparable to him. So, so she was equal. Everybody say equal. So Adam and Eve, they're created, and they're created equal. Everybody say equal. And then the fall happened. Everybody say boo. And as a result of the fall... We'll put it up on the Sky Bible for you, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it's recorded that God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. <laughs> and all of us husbands are like, that don't sound like a curse to me, Pastor. I, li I like her having a desire for me. 
But he says, and, uh uh-oh, ladies, here we go. He will rule over you. Oh, man. We don't like that one, right? What is going on here? Now, in other words, she's going to be have a desire to be equal with her husband, but he is going to rule over her. It's important to know that this curse was in a relationship between the man and the woman and not between the woman and God. That's a good place to say amen. Amen, Pastor. The curse did not change her standing before God. God did not all of a sudden view her I first saw you as equal, and now you are a woman, and I don't view you as equal anymore. That has not happened at all. And all the ladies said, amen. As a result, the curse of this curse, men started to view women that way. We started to view women not as an equal. We started to, you know, promote and lift up Adam and put down Eve. It was all her fault. It's, all, it's always the woman's fault, Pastor. Amen. You keep preaching that. That's right. That's that's what starts to happen, and this is a subtle difference, but it's important to realize that the curse affected human relationships between men and women, not women and God. Amen? To have this concept that God is not for women in ministry starts to break apart when you continue the story in the Old Testament. I'll put this up on the Sky Bible for you. You'll find that Miriam is the sister of Moses, and a sister is a girl. Everybody says it's a girl. And we find her in Exodus chapter 15. She's a prophet. Miriam is a prophet. Huldah is in 2 Kings chapter 22. And Huldah is named a prophet. And then Deborah. Oh, ladies, let me tell you about Deborah. In Judges chapter 4, it says that she is a judge. So Deborah is a senior political leader in a nation. And not only that, she is a prophet. You see, even in the Old Testament system, God appointed women as high-level spiritual and political leaders. He still saw them as equals. He sa- it says something about how God sees women and whether or not he's okay with women in ministry. And then we're going along and we find an example of the difference between the way that God perceives women and the way that man perceives women. And it comes in the story of Noah. So Noah is instructed to build this boat. And everybody thinks Noah's crazy. And he seems crazy to everybody. He's building this boat and all this stuff is going on. And then what happens is in Genesis chapter 7, it says that Noah makes this decision of how him and his family are going to enter the ark. And the way it shows how the culture viewed women, it was first Moses and then his sons. And then he let his wife come and then the wives of his sons. That's how they entered in the, they entered in the single file one. And who was first? It was the men because that's how it is. Because men are better, and it's not equal, Pastor, and I'm telling you. Well, while he's on the boat, you can go look this. In Genesis chapter 8, God comes to Noah and says, Listen, I want you to go out of the dark a little differently than the way that you came in. He goes, When you go out, I want you and your wife to be together. Everybody say together. Representing equality. Right? He goes, You and your wife, y'all go out together. And then, also together with you guys, have your sons and your son's wives, and them together, and it's equality. And all the women say, yay! (laughs) But when you go and read the Bible, did Noah obey what God said? (laughs) 
No. They exited the ark the same way that they entered. The men will go first, and then the women can come. He disobeyed the order. Listen, God was ready to restart the planet with equality between men and women. And Noah completely blows it, and he sticks with an old culture. He sticks with his old view. Thanks a lot, Noah. Thanks for helping us out, right? So we're going to go to the New Testament. The New Testament also gives us examples of women who held significant positions of leadership. Anna, everybody say Anna. Go to Luke chapter 2, verse 36. You'll find that Anna is named as a prophet. And this was significant because, listen, in the, in the, uh, the hierarchy of authority, the highest tier of authority, you can go read in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. It says, in the church, these are the highest places of authority. God is placed in the church first. What's first? Apostles. And then he says, second is prophets. Third is teachers. Uh, not even listed here is the fivefold gift, the pastors and evangelists. But it says prophet is the second as far as authorities go in the church. Okay, And we see right here that Anna was named as a prophet in the church in the New Testament. Let me say a little something about authority, though, because a lot of kind of cringe about, oh, no, authority in the church. Oh, Pastor, we've been controlled before. We don't really know about authority. Authority is, has nothing to do with control. It has everything to do with servanthood. The more authority you have, the more feet that you wash. So the apostle washes the most feet. That's how it's broken down to. You serve the most because you're a great leader, because you follow in Jesus' footsteps. He is the king of the whole entire everything. He is the son of God. And he got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples. That's, that's where, when I talk about authority, okay, and it says right here that this woman, Anna, was named as a prophet in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Also, you keep going and you'll see that uh, in, uh, 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 there is not only in a, a prophet, but there was a woman who was named as an apostle in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. So this is the highest. Her name was Junia. Everybody say Junia. I like that because my grandma's name is June. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, it says, he writes and, and he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who I've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Right there, he says, Junia. This woman was the highest place of authority in the church. She was apostle. Not only was she apostle, she was astounding among the apostles. Now, listen, there are some translations of the Bible that you will get and that you will read. And they'll change the spelling of Junia to a more masculine form to be able now to conform to their theology that women can't be in ministry. And they'll say, no, that was a man there. But listen, when you study this name out, you'll find out that in that culture, in that day, and in that time, the name was taken from the Greek goddess, which is a false god. Okay, The Greek goddess, though, at that time that they believed in was Juno, who was sought to dilate the cervix during pregnancy. This was a woman's name. There was no dudes named Junia and, you know, talking about, oh, my name represents dilating the cervix during pregnancy. Okay, this was a woman. 
Okay? And because we have an example of a female apostle, an apostle is the highest position of authority in the church, the logical conclusion is that women can also fill any other position. And all the women said, amen. Throughout the Bible, guys, I've just shown, taking you on a quick little journey throughout the Bible, that we find stories of women in authority holding high positions of leadership. We see God seeing women as equal, as equal, as equal. Amen? Oh, pastor, but what about 1 Corinthians 14? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, we're going to read this together. And some of you are going to cringe when we read it, but we got to go through it. We got to look at it. Uh, some of you women, if you ever had somebody point this out to you, it was not pretty. What happened after that was ugly, okay? I, I know this from personal experience. I've had uh, women that have been strong leaders in my life who this was shown to them and told them to shut up. So anyway, here we go. Let's read it, ladies. I'm sorry, but we're going we're gonna to do it. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 says this. Women should remain silent in the church. And all the men said, hush, pastor, hush. Don't get me in trouble. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Point, look at that. Underline that if you have your Bible. As the law says. Woo. And they want, if they want to inquire about something, uh-oh, somebody about to get in trouble right here. They should ask their own husbands at home. Hey, Jack. Woo! All right, thank you for coming, and we'll see you later. Ugh. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Elena, where's she at? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe you spoke out this morning. It's disgraceful. I'm showing you in the Scripture, and I'm going to throw this book at you. I hate to say this, but there has been many books. There has been many sermons. There has been many scholarly papers written that explain this for women not to have any position in ministry, that they're not equal, and it's completely different from the viewpoint that God has of women being equal in the Bible. Now, to bring these two verses into context, you need to understand something very simple. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it to you, and at first... It's going to be kind of weird when I say it, but stick with me because I'm going to prove it to you. So this is what you need to understand. These two verses are actually a quote from a letter from the Corinthians to Paul. So right here, the Corinthians, this letter, this 1 Corinthians, is a, it's a, an epistle. It's a letter from Paul that's he writing to who? The church in Corinth, right? So he sent them a letter, I'm going to show you that they also sent him a letter. In other words, this is not Paul's opinion. Paul was not teaching this as a gospel. He was not saying this. He was just quoting from the letter that they had sent to him. And we're going to show it, see in a minute, as soon as he finishes quoting them, he rebukes what he just quoted, which can kind of be confusing if you don't understand what we're talking about this morning. So first of all, let me ask you a question. So, say I came to you this morning and I said, hey, I'm Pastor Kevin. I need to talk to you about something. I'd like to send you an email. Can you give me your email address? And you say, sure, Pastor Kevin. And then I send you an email and it connected to the email. It's a PDF and it's a letter and you open up the PDF and I have written you an eight-page letter. 
And you're like, what did I just get myself into? Why did I give myself my, my email to this, this pastor who's sending me a book? Like, I thought he was just going to send me an email. But it's an eight-page letter that I've sent to you. Now, are you going to, in that moment, make the decision, wow, this is a long email. And you know what? Um, I don't think I can read this in one day. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split this up into an eight-day read. And uh, I'm going to read, my plan is to read one page of this email a day. So day one, I'll read a page. Day two, I'll read a page. It's eight pages. I can do it in eight days. And then you decide, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to print it out, and I'm going to throw all the pages out on the ground. And then I'm going to kind of run around in a circle. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to go boom. And whatever page that I put my finger on, that's where I'm going to start. Would any of you make that decision to do that? Maybe you would, but I wouldn't. And here's the problem. Please don't stop reading your daily devotionals. Please don't stop reading your daily Bible reading that are just little spots. But what you have done when you wake up on Monday morning and you read, you go, oh, what's my daily Bible reading plan? And it says, well, today you're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. And you go, okay. What you did is you just printed out the whole email, you went in circles, and you put down, and you go, Wow. And after reading that, you're done because that was your daily Bible reading. And what you got out of it is, man, Paul is sexist. This dude is hard on women. He hates women. And I didn't ever know that about Paul because he's super grace, man. He's Mr. Grace. Like, I didn't know this about him. And that's what you got out of reading it the way that you read it. So if you're going along, and you see that God progressively through the Bible is revealing himself unto women as they're not less than men. They're equal to men. They have the same value, right? You see that, and then all of a sudden you come to your daily Bible reading, and you read this, and you go, this doesn't fit in to what the whole entire thing of what I've seen. What do you need to do? You need to read the letter in entirety. You need to start in chapter 1, and you need to read the entire letter. Now, when you start to do that, you start in chapter 1, and you start reading. You're not reading a segment anymore. You're, you're, going, you're going really good. All of a sudden, you're going to get to chapter 7. So you go chapter 1, 2, 3. You're reading. You're tracking along all these ideas. You get to chapter 7, and you'll see that it says this. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now for the matters that you wrote about. So for the matters that they wrote about, that means that there was a letter from the Corinthians to Paul, right? So there's a letter from the Corinthians to Paul. You have to now recognize that the chapters that follow are Paul's responses to a letter that the Corinthians had sent him. You continue reading chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. You get to a portion in chapter 11, and Paul starts talking about this head covering. And he's like, women can prophesy in the church as long as they have a head covering. Now, here's the thing. If you use a proper historical contextual hermeneutic, you'll see in their culture in that day, this was something that their culture did. This is not something that our culture does. The point I want to bring out of the letter is that Paul said it is okay for women in the public assembly in the church to speak for God. That what... Uh, my mind just went completely blank. Elena. That what Elena, I looked at Adriana and I thought, Adriana, what Elena did this morning, Paul said was okay. 
He says, I just want you to do it as far as you need to put a head covering on. Now, next time, Elena, when you get the head covering going. So he says that, and then you keep tracking in the letter, and then all of a sudden, he says in verse 15, he goes, you know what? Or in verse uh, chapter 14, he says, you know what? You know what? No, no longer do I think that anymore. I said that it was okay for a woman to speak in church on behalf of God, but now I'm telling all the ladies, shut up. You need to shut up. Doesn't that seem off? Shouldn't there be red flags going off? Boop, 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 boop. Paul, you've lost your mind. Why did you say something right here? And so it's because he's quoting the letter that they read to him, and that's why it looks so rough. Guys, listen, if you just read this in context, you will start to see that he goes on and he says that as the law should say, in verse 34, women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law said. As the law said, another red flag. Boop, 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 boop. If you've heard Pastor Jared speak anything about this guy, Paul, he was a champion, not of the law, but of grace. He writes a whole letter to the Galatians going, you guys are trying to go back to the law. Stop it. Time out. Don't do the law. Not the law. In fact, he says in one of the scriptures, he says that the law is the ministry that brought death. So for, for, for Paul to all of a sudden stand up and go, all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to tell all the women to shut up as the law says. And that is heavy handed. I mean, I'm really putting them on the ladies. Does that sound like something that Paul would say? No, it's because he didn't say it. It's because he was quoting from the letter that was sent to him, and now he's about to rebuke. And in fact, let's just say that you're right. You're saying, let's just say that you're right and that Paul did say that he said, I'm just going to tell you, ladies, that you can't do it because the law says. Go study the law. Nowhere in the law does it say that women can't talk and that women can't talk in the church because there wasn't a church the way that they understood it in that day. It doesn't even make sense, right? And then he keeps on, and in verse 36, he, 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 he presses, he just quoted 34 and 35, which was so hard to read. It's hard to read because it was somebody else's opinion, and they were saying, there's some messed up stuff going on, and we feel like it would be better if the women just shut up. And Paul says, okay, that's what you said. And then he says in verse 36, right after he quotes that, he says, or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people that the word of God has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet, he said, anyone. If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, if anyone thinks that they are gifted by the Spirit, he says, let them acknowledge what I am. He, he says, not the law. Don't acknowledge what the law is saying. That's what you were, you were trying to say. That was your, your dumb idea that you put into your letter that you wrote to me. He says, no, acknowledge what I am writing to you as the Lord's command. And then he says this, if anyone ignores this, they themselves, he says, as the leader, as the apostle of this region, those people will be ignored. Then he says this, therefore, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, he says, my sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. My sister, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Focus on the last thing he just said. Because, because verse 33 and verse 40 are bookends of the point that he's trying to make. 
in verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of disorder. Then he makes this statement that's really rough. Then he rebukes that statement, and then he bookends it with verse 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. What was going on is they were having problems in the services and a guy was trying now to get women out of the services. And in, in modern language, it would sound like this. Hey, here's what you're saying. You wrote a letter to me. Your idea was let's oppress women. Let's say women that aren't equal. They're not equal to us. And he says, no, don't do that. Who do you think you are? Did you write the word of God? Are you the one that comes with this? You're off track. Instead, do what I'm telling you. And what I am telling you as your apostle is the Lord's command. Let everyone prophesy. Let the women prophesy. Let the men prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. But the point that I really want to get to you is let this all be done in order. Because we just went through that. We went beyond belief. Amen. And all the ladies said, Amen. Let's let's just try to address very quickly uh, 1 Timothy. It's another, it's hard to read, but I'm going to read it for you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It says, A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. Uh Uh-oh, here we go again. Shut up and submit. That's right. We're going to eat where I want to eat this afternoon. And you're going to submit, you're going to shut up, you're going to hear about what I have to say, woman. It's in the Bible. He says, this is Paul writing a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he says, because I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. For Adam and Eve, okay, and then he says that, and you're like, oh, man, that was kind of harsh. And then then he just kind of goes out of nowhere. He goes, for Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not the one that was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And then he says something that is so awkward. He goes, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Pastor Jared, I've yet to come to a service, and I've been to lots of church services, where the pastor gave an altar call, which I'm about to do right now. If there's any women that are here today, and you haven't become pregnant and given birth, come down. Come to the front. We're going to pray that you get pregnant. And when you give birth, you'll be saved. And Kelsey said, amen. I'm going to be saved, Pastor. This baby about to pop. In the way that it reads, it almost seems like an alternative way to salvation. A woman will be saved during childbirth. Hmm. Well, let's look at this very quickly. Okay, another thing, I'll just put up the next, um, this is a diagram that you need to understand when you're reading a letter. Like I said, these are epistles, these are letters. And so you have to understand that the way that 1 Timothy was, was written, it was written masterfully, okay? And it starts with an introduction. If you take a, like a picture of this and go study this later, but we, our translations, they put chapter breaks in places that they really shouldn't be. They just kind of didn't know what to do at some times. Listen, I love the Bible that we have. I'm not, y'all understand that? I love, I love the word that we have, okay? But there's some places. So really, it's the introduction, and that's chapter 1, and that's 1 through 14. Then he makes, he goes, he's, he's, a, he's very brilliant. 
So he says, I'm going to give you my first trustworthy saying, and out of that, I'm going to say some things. And then I'm going to give you my second trustworthy saying. That's in chapter 3. And he says, and then I'm going to have a third trustworthy saying. This is really where the chapter break should be, if there really should be chapter breaks. It's just there so we could get to it quicker. Y'all understand that? So then he gets to the conclusion is in chapter 6. Now, what I just read is underneath the heady of his first the heading of his first trustworthy saying. Let me read that to you right quick. First Timothy chapter 1. He says, "Here is my trustworthy saying, and it deserves full acceptance." Okay, Timothy. He says, "Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners." And everybody said, "Amen." And he says, of whom, of all the sinners, he says, I'm the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy. So what is his point? He's saying, it's him. It's his love. It's his grace. It's his mercy. This is what I'm trying to talk about. He says, uh, um, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. Everybody say patience. Praise God for patience. Example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, He just makes that, and out of that, he starts in, and he says, now I'm just going to address, in my letter, I'm going to address Timothy, specifically. So put that up there. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command. Keep with, okay, you can go study that later. I got to hurry up. Then, after that, he addresses the entire church in chapter 2, verse 1. So put chapter 2, verse 1. And then he says to the entire church, I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession, listen, this is all great things for the entire church. Then he keeps on going, and in verse 8 of chapter 2, he now addresses men. Everybody say men. So he talks to the men, and what he, says, he says, therefore, men, I'm talking to the men. I pray, lifting up, I want you to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. That's awesome. Then, in verse 9, he addresses all the women. Everybody say women. It's all the women. And what does he say to the women? I also want the women to dress modestly. That's a good thing with decency and propriety, adorning themselves with not elaborate hair stores, uh, gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Verse 10, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Then we get to this troubling scripture that has been used to beat up women for years and years. He stops addressing all the women and what does he say in, 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 in the first part of, cha- of verse 11? He says, a woman. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. I mean, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. He says, a woman. A woman should learn in quietness. He stops addressing all the women, and he addresses a singular, particular, one woman. Only in verse 15 does he go back to addressing all the women when he talks about the childbearing. We'll get to that in just a second. But right here in these two uh, these passages of Scripture, he is addressing a woman. Now listen, commentators who have looked at this passage closely say that Timothy received this letter while he was at the church in Ephesus. That's where Paul had previously been for two years teaching the, every day in the school of Tyrannus. You can go read about that in Acts chapter 19. Now Timothy was the lead apostle there. Now it's when he receives this letter, he's the lead apostle. Apostle in Tyrannus, he was running into some issues because in Ephesus, this was the home of the cult of Diana. So this is historical contextual right here. One of the teachings of this cult of Diana was that Eve was the pinnacle of creation. It was formed there, uh, it was formed first, and that Adam then was actually the one who was deceived in the garden, not Eve. Therefore, they pointed the finger. There was a women's lib movement going on, okay? 
and they're like, we've been oppressed. They said, we're not equals. Well, you know what? We'll change this whole story around. It wasn't Adam that was created first. It was Eve that created first. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to start saying this. We're going to start going in to the services, these churches that they're having, and we're going to start to proclaim that this is how it was. The problem was these female idol worshipers, they got saved. They had this theology wrong, and the creation story was all wrong to them, and they gave them a negative attitude towards men. Many scholars believe that there was an individual woman who was causing Timothy problems. That's why Paul says, women, 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 and then he says, Timothy, I know about the woman you're talking about. And he says, a woman. I do not permit that woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Take the word authority. The word translated there for authority is authentian. Authentian is not a, a, a very uh, casual and normal use of the word when you see the Bible translation. Authentian, it means the most violent usurping of authority. And so authority is a good thing, but at times it can be a bad thing, especially in this form. So this is, this is the point. Paul was not apply, implying that he would allow men to violently usurp authority. That's not the point at all. In other words, gender is not the issue being addressed here. Instead, he was saying, in, F, in essence, he was saying, I would not allow this specific woman to keep usurping your authority by disrupting your services with these crazy teachings. Paul was pointing out that this woman's inappropriate behavior was the problem. It wasn't her gender that was the problem. It's what she was doing, her behavior that was a problem. People were literally jumping up in the middle of services and trying to take over with their bizarre teachings. So uh, let's get the worship team to come up here, and I'll land the plane with this. God loves women. He created women and created women equal to men. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. Amen. We're equal, okay? But let's talk about, and I just want to show you something very quickly. What is all this jive about the women will be saved through childbearing? I'm going to show you something really cool, and I and, uh, encourage everybody, just write this down, biblehub.com or biblehub.net, one of those. I'm going to put this, this up on the, the Sky Bible for you, and I want to show you, now, I've talked about the King James translation today, I've talked about the NIV, um, two forms of study that I use in particular are the interlinear Bible and I like to use the Young's Literal Translation. Um, the NIV will translate the Greek to you thought for thought. Everybody say thought for thought. And that's a good thing. It makes for an easy read. Young's Literal Translation will translate the Greek word for word. And we'll talk about that later on this year. We're really going to get deep in some stuff, okay? So word for word. So I went, and this is just a screenshot of the interlinear Bible of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And so what it does, it'll show you the Greek word, and then it will show you the English word. And it translates it word for word. So let's look at this right quick. She will be saved is this Greek word, sothesete. However is they. Through is dia. Whoa, 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 time out, pastor. There's just a dash for this word, 
that's in the original Greek translation. T-E-S, tes. Oh, time out. This is why this scripture is so frustrating and hard to understand is because the translators didn't translate the whole scripture. It's in the Greek. It's just not in your translation. There should be a word, and that word is translated the, the. So it should say, she will be saved, however, through the childbearing. Translators at that time and at that day, when they were translated, that didn't make sense to them. So you know what they just did? They just smoothed it out, and they just took out T-E-S, the. But when you put it, listen, you can go and look at Young's literal translation, and it actually includes the, because it's not thought for thought, it's word for word. It puts the word the in there, and it should say the childbearing. Everybody say the childbearing. So what childbearing, the childbearing, is it talking about? Well, think about in context of what he just said, right? The previous two verses are talking about Adam and Eve. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'll put this up on the screen for you. The, the Bible says this, and I will put enmity. This is God speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and who? The woman. Everybody say Eve. And he says, and between your offspring. Everybody say offspring. Offspring. He says, between your offspring and Eve's offspring. And it says that her offspring now will crush your head. Woo! Who's that talking about? This is the childbearing. This is the offspring prophecy that was promised and prophesied by God to the enemy. And he said, there is going to come along one day through the the lineage. It's going to all of a sudden one day, there's going to be a king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's going to now in verse 15, we can read, but women will be saved through the childbearing. Young's little translation actually capitalizes the sea in childbearing because it's talking about the fulfillment of what was promised to Eve. It's what he promised to Eve about her offspring one day would come now and crush the head of the serpent. And this is saying that they are saved through a child that was born. Isn't that good? Doesn't that make sense now? So, guys, I, I, I don't have time to get to the last one. And, and it's not as and we'll talk about it sometime but I just want you to know that this year God has taken us beyond belief and there's going to be some places that you're going to be in your life and in your belief systems and all of a sudden you're going to ask the question why do we cut off both ends of the hand why can't women speak in church again you're going to call grandma and she's going to say, for land's sake, are y'all still doing that? Like, I don't even do that anymore. And you're going to start to understand through a proper hermeneutic, a historical contextual hermeneutic, through proper exegesis, through these tools that we're given, giving you, through now understanding that God reveals himself progressively through the Bible, through understanding now how to read a letter. You don't just start in the middle. Boom. Okay, we hate women. Okay, today we hate women. 
Now I'm going to go read verse 14. No, we love women. Elena, come back. Come on back. Say something today. But next week, I'm going to read 17. Throwing you out. You need to submit to your husband. You need to shut up. And you need to get quiet. You need to... When you read something in the Bible and red flags go off and you go, this doesn't sound like my heavenly father. It's because it's probably not your heavenly father. Somebody gave you a filter. And this is what breaks my heart. And the last thing I want to say is I just want to apologize to the women. From the bottom of my heart as pastors of generations gone by who have come before. And with the Bible, we have brought you down made you feel less than, made you feel not equal, I apologize. You're important. God has a plan for you. He made you, and you are a masterpiece, and you have value. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for taking us on this journey. I thank you that we're going beyond belief. I thank you that I'm the proud father of three beautiful girls who have an unbelievable future ahead of them. God, I, I just ask that as we, as we move through this, I know that there will be some ruffling and, and, and shaking and, and, and iron will sharpen iron. And the only way that iron sharpens iron is there's, there's repeated heat and friction. And we'll start to, at some point, go, I'm not really sure that I see it that way. And I, read, I interpret it this way. As we have these conversations, Lord God, I pray that at no point in our disagreement that would disrespect one another. Pray that we'll always keep the focus, the focus, and the focus is love, that we love, that we love, that we don't hold record of wrong, that we come together and we talk about things, Lord God, and that we move, we move forward in you and you take us beyond belief and that can be a peaceful thing. I declare that this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody said amen.